Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Tonight, it's a new episode of All Rise, the legal drama where one judge is shaking up the system. When I take the bench, I'm taking a vow to fight for justice. One case at a time. Your Honor. We're going to trial. Simone Misick is Judge Lola Carmichael. Up on that bench. Everything is different. A new episode of All Rise. Freedom is at stake. It's important. Followed by a new episode of Bull, tonight at 9, 8 central on CBS. For over a year, BuzzFeed News reporters Anthony Cormier and Jason Leopold had been reporting on President Trump and his campaign's ties to Russia, breaking major stories and trying to follow the money. We had both been fantasizing about this mother load. I just remember Anthony was like, oh my God, oh my God. They'd received thousands of secret government documents that revealed that banks all over the world had moved money for terrorists and criminals and drug dealers. And the U.S. government knows about it. We see actual human beings pulling the levers that allow this sort of criminal misconduct to go on. I'm Azine Gureshi. Join me for our new podcast, Suspicious Activity, Inside the FinCent Files. We'll dive into the story these secret documents tell and take you behind the scenes with my colleagues at BuzzFeed News as they reported it. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Find it on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Time for fatness to meet fitness. Hold on to your butt. The common man and the thinking man. They were so convincing in their arguments. They swung me. The avocado and the great bravado. I want it. It's everything. Nick Wilson and Josh Parcell. I assume you know who we are. Are Wilson and Parcell. Charlotte, welcome into Wilson and Parcel. I'm Nick Wilson. He's Josh Parcel. Hacksaws over yonder. What's up, Josh? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Happy Wednesday to everybody. It we is are... a happy Wednesday, isn't it? Yeah, sure is. I am. I am happy to be here. I'm just here so I don't get fined. You know, uh, nobody has ever been hurt by going Marshawn Lynch that isn't Marshawn Lynch. They carry all's chicken. Yeah. As long as you're quoting Marshawn Lynch, you are untouchable. That is a fact in the United States of America. If you went to trial for some sort of heinous crime, but you quoted Marshawn Lynch in your defense, you would get out of uh, a jail scot-free. That's basically a get-out-of-jail-free card. There you go. See that now. The more you know, uh, I'm gonna. If, if I ever get pulled over, I'm just gonna start quoting Marshawn Lynch and see how far it gets me. To be fair, when I said America, I did mean the Pacific Northwest and in particular Seahawks fans. So, yeah. but you know what? Maybe try it down here and see if maybe there's just a a, a fan of beast mode down here. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm doing better now. Graham Gano is signed. Good for Graham. Look, Look at, at that. that. Graham Gano, New York Giant, reunited with Dave Gettleman uh, once again. It's, Happy for that guy. I, I just, I'm actually a little upset now because I wanted him to go to our uh, faraway homes in either Washington or Buffalo. And the fact that he didn't go like seemingly every other person, the Panther, to one of those teams, I'm a little bit upset. Does he not like Ron Rivera? Well, the, the Giants are the other one. They've, they've got they've got former uh, Panthers up there. I'm sorry. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a pale imitation of Carolina North or Carolina North East. Yeah, we explain it. 
they, they also have former Panthers. There's, yeah. there's three. Bu- Buffalo just gets like all the dudes. See, Washington the takes the coaches. They get a few. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the the Giants have a few. Uh, but but I see what you're saying. You know what? Yeah. We'll just agree to disagree on this matter because okay. it doesn't really matter that yeah, much. Yeah, weird argument. All right, let's uh, keep going. But, but it's good we got on. the first one out of the way because uh, it was interesting to see ESPN had their uh, ceiling and floor article, which for every single team in the NFL, they uh, ran 20,000 simulations. Rather, for the entirety of the NFL, they ran 20,000 simulations using their football power index. And uh, for the Carolina Panthers, pretty interesting here, Josh, saying the ceiling is eight and eight and the floor is three and four, continuing what we've talked about as the wide range of possibilities for the Carolina Panthers this year. Well, I, I wouldn't even call it a wide range. I think it's a pretty normal range. If, I think if you look at most teams, even in this article, the, the range is about five games. I mean, th- this is the NFL. And in the NFL, there's going to be a handful of teams that are among the best in the league that on average, if you play the season 20,000 times simulated or whatever, on average, those teams probably win 11 ish games or so. But in any one given season, you know, a few breaks here or there, you have good injury luck, uh, turnovers go your way, you end up winning 13 or 14 games. Or maybe you have some bad breaks and you end up winning nine games. Or maybe you just play out your season like you should and you win around 11. That, that's kind of the range. So you have the best teams that usually there's about five or six of them that are like those 10-11 type win teams. Then you have the middle group, and the middle group is huge, the middle class of the NFL, which is about 20 teams. And then you have the lower class of the NFL, which is your teams that on average are five or six win teams. That's where the Panthers are. The Panthers are clearly in the lower class of the NFL. They are not a middle class team right now. They are a lower class team. Teams like Cincinnati, teams like Jacksonville, teams like Washington, even a team like Miami that got better this offseason, but it's still among the lower class teams in the league. I even would throw the Jets into that conversation. They're the lower class of the league that on average, if the Panthers played the season a million times, they probably average about four, maybe five wins, but it's only one season. So there's some variety that can happen with your outcomes. The ESPN says the ceiling is eight and eight. Uh, They say the floor is three and 13. Me personally, I think eight and eight is high. I think seven wins is the absolute best that you could expect from the Panthers in 2020. And I actually think the floor should be a little bit lower. I think it should be two. I see it as a two to seven win team, something in that range. ESPN's got three to eight, but either way, the ceiling's pretty low for a, for a team coming off of a bad year and under a major rebuild. Yeah, seeing how this is done off uh, simulations and how that's how they're establishing this, I'd love to see what simulations broke out with the Panthers going eight and eight, or or what would ha- what had to happen for the Panthers to go eight and eight. Well, I mean, I look at the schedule, and they're favored in two games right now. And those two games they're favored in, they're both favored by a half point. <laughs> it's it's not great. They're favored in a middle-of-the-season game against the Lions by a half point, and they're favored against, uh, who's the other one? There's one more. It's the Lions. Oh, oh uh, Washington at the end of the season. They're favored by a half point in that game, which is actually a road game. That's it. Uh, most other games on their schedule, they're massive underdogs. They they are underdogs right now, and it, it's early, but uh, these things can change. They are underdogs by more than a touchdown in half of their games. <laughs> Eight of the 16 games right now, they are a, a touchdown or worse against that opponent. Only six games are they even an underdog by less than a touchdown. This is a team that's not only is it 
rebuilding and I would say one of the worst rosters in the league. It also is going up against what some are calling the toughest schedule in the NFL. They play in a division in the NFC South. They're going to be the first team in NFL history to play six games against quarterbacks who have won an MVP, uh, which is a challenge in and of itself. Not counted in that group is Drew Brees. So six against former MVPs plus two more against Drew Brees. That's half your schedule. And then they also draw outside of their division, the Chiefs. They draw the Vikings. They draw the Packers on the road. This is a very difficult schedule for the Panthers, which is why there may be a couple teams in the league who are worse football teams. But with the schedule the Panthers have, I think it's trending closer to that two to four win range. Maybe if they get lucky, they get to five or six. And if everything in the world breaks right for them, they get to seven. But I can't see it getting any better than that. The interesting thing about this is ESPN, who who did this, who did the seal, who established the ceiling and the floors. They're the ones that in one of the previous articles we've talked about had the Panthers as having the toughest uh, schedule in the league. So right. it's, it's that, to me again, I, I listen, I think three and 13 is likely. I, I think uh, I think five or six wins is being more optimistic, even though I, I do think that seven wins probably, you know, you, you put it from two to seven wins. I think that's probably the most fair, uh, you know, win loss ceiling floor kind of situation. But the whole idea about, you know, this team playing the tough schedule, I'm also looking at the division and wondering what has to happen within the division for for the Panthers to to be able to go 8 and 8 because in, in my mind for that to happen Tampa Bay has to be uh, beatable early because you have that week 2 game you're going to have to be able to beat uh New Orleans at least once which feels far fetched and then you're going to have to go up against an Atlanta team who has subsided previously on what I think they're going to subside this year, which is a lot of offense and just enough defense. They can have a 22nd best defense in the NFL. If their offense is top 10, that's going to give them a chance to be eight and eight or better. I'm trying to look at what, you know, divisional factors can change for the Panthers to have a shot at eight and eight too. Yeah. I mean, if they went winless in the division, they'd have to go eight and six outside of it. To go hate and hate, that just that just doesn't seem possible. I mean, I just like I look at the what are the most winnable games on the schedule? I mentioned the two where they're favored. So it's Lions and Washington. Outside of that, the Raiders game week one feels winnable. The Cardinals in week four. So th- there's four winnable games. The Bears, that's five. Maybe one of the Falcons games at six. Uh I guess Denver late in the season. I mean, injuries can change all of this, and that's the NFL. So if a team, you know, suffers a rash of injuries, they lose their quarterback, uh, and the Panthers stay healthy, that that changes the equation for the entire season. But even even so, these things tend to have a, a way of balancing themselves out. I looked at last year, and I, I just wanted to get just a sense. And this is just one year, but you know, look at the worst teams in the NFL last year. And again, the Panthers are the lower class. So let's look at the 2019 lower class. And how did they fare? The Dolphins, Cardinals, uh, Bengals, Giants, and Washington. Those were the teams with the lowest win totals last year in Vegas. Uh, Washington and New York and Cincy had six wins uh, was their total in Vegas. Arizona was five. Dolphins were four and a half. So that's basically the range you're talking about with the Panthers this year. Those five teams won five, five, two, four, and three games. None of them went better than five and 11. When you're the lower class in the NFL, it is very hard to outperform the expectations and even get to 500. The lower class is kind of the lower class. And this is just one season. There's probably examples in the past of teams that we thought were, you know, five and 11 teams that ended up winning eight or nine games, but it's very hard to do that. And I just, 
I just don't see the Panthers as a team that's going to be able to to exceed expectations to that degree, given just how bad this defense is going to be. Even if the offense is great, it is hard to win a lot of games when your defense is this young, this inexperienced, and lacks as much talent as they do right now. Looking at the ESPN projections on ceiling floor, ceilings and floors for teams in the NFL, they have the Panthers ceiling at eight and eight, the floor at three and thirteen, and this you know this conversation about the rebuild and the timing of the rebuild and and what has to happen. Uh, you know, Trey Boston, uh, our buddy here on the afternoon show and just on FNZ in general, he was asked about the rebuild and timing of the rebuild earlier this week. From what we know, Carolina Panthers never had two back-to-back winning seasons. And uh, we're not saying it's going to be, uh, you know, mucho rapido, uh, <laughs> but we plan on making a, a difference that stays for the long haul. And uh, we like, you know, the way Coach rules, you know, coaching this team up right now. He's, he's gaining a lot of respect from guys. Okay, I just got to say this. If this team, once they get into the season, if they just start talking Spanish with a smile like Trey just did, I think it's going to be more palatable. Like if, if they if they start out like two and ten, but he's saying things like mucho rapido, or we have Jaime Moreno, or uh, uh, Jaime come out, the Spanish announced team come out and just say what's been going on and recap. I feel like it's going to feel better. I feel better about this team and this rebuild after hearing Trey say uh, mucho mucho rapido. I, I think the the only way. Uh, Panthers games might be watchable by the middle of the season is if you're watching the Spanish broadcast. All, all due respect to Mick Mixon and Jake DeLome and those guys are great. But uh, Jaime spices it up a little bit. It makes it a little more interesting. We all know the Ganola Gano kick. We might need a few more of those uh, to, to make the games a little more watchable when it's, you know, week 12. They're uh, they're up in Minnesota. It's, it's 31 to 14 in the fourth quarter. I'm gonna need something to keep me hooked. That might be that might be it. It's gonna be that and or booze. Uh, I thought it was interesting in the ESPN uh, ceiling and floor conversation. The biggest variable was the defense, and I, I pointed out something with Atlanta, Josh, that I don't think is gonna be possible for Carolina. You know, if you have a bottom ten defense in the NFL, your offense has to be top ten. And more than likely top five in the last decade of the the defenses, the bad defense that have been carried by great offenses, you have to be top five, top 10 to have a chance at the playoffs and competitiveness. If you're going to have a bottom 10 defense, I think that's possible in Atlanta, considering that they fortified the trenches on, on the offensive line the past few years. They still have Julio, you know, uh, they, they did sign Todd Gurley, who I think is still salvageable within that offense. They've got Matt Ryan. They can do that. I think here, if there was a better offensive line, I'd give this team the the offense a better chance of doing that. I think that's going to be the difference between them being able to truly meet this ceiling and not. Yeah, there's there's just not a lot of teams that in today's NFL can overcome a bad defense. I mean, I know that the game has been so has shifted so much to offense, where it's about quarterbacks and it's about big plays and scoring a lot of points, and that that's great. But you've got to be able to stop somebody. And not only is the Panthers defense on paper pretty bad, it's bad in the wrong places. It's it's bad in the back seven. And when you're playing in this division where everybody in the in the division has a great quarterback, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, former MVPs and also Drew Brees, where, where are you going to slow down the opponents? Are, are you slowing down New Orleans with, with Dante Jackson and Eli Apple? I mean, I think Trey Boston's the best thing they have in the secondary. I like Trey. But but Trey's not an all pro safety. 
And around him, there's really not a lot. And even at linebacker, Shaq Thompson is a guy that in coverage has been beaten a lot, right? And, and to hear Whitehead had some really, uh, uh, I would say, concerning numbers about him in past coverage the last watch couple the tape of on years. That either. Uh, it's not great. I mean, he's given up more. Uh, what is it? Uh, the most touchdowns in coverage of any linebacker in the league in the last two years. To hear Whitehead. I mean, you go from Keekley to Whitehead. That's a huge drop off in pass coverage. I'm, that makes me nervous. I just, I, if it was an easier schedule, maybe. But where, where do you see the wins? Yeah, uh, I don't. <laughs> I think that's going to be the problem. What is the the Panthers' ceiling and floor? Text us via the Building Center uh, on the Building Center text line. Uh, tweets this hour, also courtesy of Diamonds Direct. Uh, what is the Panthers' ceiling and what is the Panthers' floor? And with great responsibility comes great power or strike that and reverse it. With great power comes great responsibility on Sports Radio FNZ. Wilson and Parcel, Josh and I are talking about uh, the ESPN uh, football power index simulation that had the power or had the Panthers at uh, a ceiling of eight and eight and a floor of three and 13. And I know sometimes I can be accused of overthinking things. Uh, I, I think everybody can in sports talk, Josh, but I think when we talk about the Panthers floor and their ceiling, the guy that's going to have the biggest impact on it is going to be Teddy Bridgewater. And I said the, the offensive line is going to be a part of this, but to me, his ability to deal with the offensive line and this team's ability to work around this offensive line and how that impacts Teddy Bridgewater, that to me is one of the biggest factors this year outside of the obvious in is the defense going to be the worst defense in the league. Yeah, I would say what about the defense? No, I just think the offense is going to even even at its best this year. I think the offense is going to have to carry the the defense. So to me, when I look at Teddy Bridgewater, if Teddy Bridgewater can be the guy that can make more throws down the field and can keep this team in a game with his arm and keep them competitive with his arm, then I think you've got a real chance at that seven win in what we thought think is the plateau versus their eight wins, but. I think the defense at best is going to be 20th best in the NFL because they're so young and there's so much turnover. I can't see it being better than that. I think I look at it this way. If they get Teddy to play really well this season, which is I think is possible. Teddy has a good year, plays well in most games. I still think the Panthers ceiling is about four or five wins if the defense is awful. Maybe six, I guess. If the defense is surprisingly average or mediocre, I don't think anybody expects the defense to be good. But if the defense isn't one of the four worst in the league and is competent against the run. Maybe the secondary is a little bit better than we think. They don't give up 325 yards a game and their defense is able to stay somewhat competitive. All of a sudden, now this team goes from a three win team to a seven or eight, nine win team. Like that, I mean, that that's what you're talking about. If this defense can just really, really surprise and or I guess would say, I would say shock us to me. I, I, I sort of know what I'm going to get with the Panthers offense. I know that Bridgewater is going to be a steady, uh, steady Eddie at quarterback. I know they have one of the most dynamic players in football. Steady Teddy? That is true. He, steady Teddy is actually a very good nickname for that dude. I don't know why nobody has called him Steady Teddy before. That's really good. Let's uh, let's write that. We're going to write we're, that down. That's that's copyright of Wilson and Parcel. We should mark that down. So, um, we know what we're going to have with Teddy Bridgewater. We know that Christian McCaffrey's 
going to be a dynamic threat all year long. We know that DJ Moore is going to be a good wide receiver. There's a lot of knowns on the offense. Now, there are questions on the offense. Don't get me wrong. But I think we basically can say this offense should probably be around league average, maybe slightly below league average, but should probably be around league average this season. The defense is the big question mark for me. If the defense can be because there's nothing worse than than what we already expect from this defense it can only outperform expectations it can't it can't underperform so if that's the case i think the most important part of this team when it comes to how many games can they win it's not the the offense it's the defense can the defense be better than we think it can be because Right now, most people think it's the worst in the NFL. What's interesting about that is, well, you are you are correct. <laughs> you can't be if we're expecting it to be the league's worst defense. You can only go up uh, or stay right there. You can't get any worse than the the league worst. But I think if you ask me, which unit has the ability to surpass their expectations? If you said. Uh, the the defense at 32 or the Panthers at 16, meaning that they would be the 15th best offense or better, I still would probably put money on the offense. I think the expectation should be, because of all, some of the faults that they have, specifically up front, I think the expectation is that they should be the, the 16th or 17th best offense in the NFL. But I still think that if that if, if Okung and Paradis uh, kind of outshine their expectations. And if maybe a Dennis Daly comes along and becomes a good left guard and they've got a, a good or better offensive line, well, then suddenly I think you're talking about a team that could be upwards of the 12th best offense or 11th best. And while that still probably isn't good enough to 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 carry a defense, I think that's more likely than suddenly this defense, which took all of its good production from last year and shipped it out of town, and in place of that, put all these young guys, then them being better than one of the three worst defenses in the NFL this year. Yeah, I, I think we're more or less saying the same thing. I just think that whatever the offense is capable of, it needs the defense. If if the Panthers are going to be better than we expect this season, if they're gonna if they're gonna touch that that ceiling that we're talking about, which is eight wins, if they're gonna get to eight wins, they're not gonna do it with a defense that's one of the three worst in the NFL. They're just not. If they're going to be a league average team, if they're going to win half of their games, particularly against this schedule, they have to be better on defense than what most people expect them to be, which is a team that can't cover, which is a team that's going to struggle, that struggled last year against the run historically, and really outside of Derrick Brown did little to address it. They got worse at linebacker. They got worse at edge rusher, or at least less experienced at, 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 at I shouldn't say edge rusher, but pass rushing, because I, I should include the guys on the inside that were good pass rushers last year as well. This is a team that, that defensively was bad last season, and the good parts of the defense are gone, and it's up to a lot of youth and inexperience to try to fill that void. I'm I'm looking at that defense and thinking if the Panthers want to touch eight wins or even dream about eight wins, you can talk about the offense being good all you want. At some point, the defense has to at least be competent. And that's going to be, to me, the ultimate X factor on whether or not this is a team that wins three games or a team that wins five, six, or maybe even eight games. ESPN has the Panthers floor at three wins and the ceiling at eight wins. I think I would probably shorten it up a little bit. I, I know the usual window here is is four to five five uh, wins is the difference on what you can expect from teams. I probably would go. You said seven wins. I don't hate that. I, th- I think that is a hypothetical possibility. I think realistically, for me, the 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 ceiling and floor is three wins in six wins here. 
uh, for, for this team. As we ponder that, though, I would also say, Josh, I think for them to hit their ceiling or to surpass what my ceiling is for them, I, I think the guy on the defense that I'm most excited and the guy you actually threw the, the Twitter topic out there of, uh, of of don't sleep on and then fill in the blank. My guy who's kind of the key to, to this whole conversation, at least defensively, is what kind of an impact player can Derek Brown be? He's the guy that I think in some way people are sleeping on because he's not Isaiah Simmons and he wasn't necessarily an overwhelming favorite. I'm expecting that dude to have a big year this year. I'm really excited to see what he can do. Yeah, and if you want to go be a part of it, go out on the Diamonds Direct Twitter feed at Josh Parcell or hit us up, Building Center text line, uh, with your answer. Don't don't sleep on who. who. Who are people sleeping on right now that are going to surprise us? I think Derek Brown... I don't know. People are sleeping on Derek Brown. He is a top ten pick. Yeah, but I don't. I, I don't mean, hear a lot of hype on uh, Derek Brown. Like usually, you draft a, def- a key defensive right. position up front with a top ten pick. We should. Where? Where's the? I don't want to say rookie of the year talk because that's. I don't care about that. But like, where's the hype on Derek Brown? I mean, he was on national television yesterday doing an interview. I I think Derek Brown's getting a on a team that doesn't have much outside of McCaffrey and Bridgewater to talk about. And I guess DJ Moore, I, I would say that Brown's a guy that a lot of people are looking towards. So, so one interview in, in what, eight months? Well, you said people are sleeping on him. I just, I don't know that. Well, but I haven't heard a lot like, of talk like about Stephen Weatherly is a guy you're sleeping on. Well, like, no, is, is like, this a journeyman with, defensive end. But like with Derek Brown, I haven't heard a lot of people expecting him to be a guy who can change the fate of this defense this year. That's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting him to be good enough in the run game at the very least and up the middle as a guy who is a top seven pick, he doesn't have to be, you know, Fletcher Cox this year. He doesn't have to be Aaron Donald, but I think he needs to be good enough that the way we look at that defensive line and up the middle at the end of the season, we're going to look at it differently than we do now, which is uh, we got an unknown with KK given his age and we got an unknown with Derek Brown because he's a draft pick. No, I, I would agree with that. I just I, I'm not sleeping on a on a top 10 pick. That's all. But I agree with you that Derek Brown has, there's a lot of weight on his shoulders. I mean, to, to come in and, and to live up to being the seventh pick, because let's face it. If you look at at, at guys who get drafted at defensive tackle in the first round, especially in the top 10, you, you can't just be a guy who helps the run game because those guys don't offer you a ton of additional value to winning. This is a passing league. This is a quarterback driven league. And on defense, it's about getting after the quarterback. It's about disrupting the passing game. And if you're going to be a defensive tackle, you've got to be able to disrupt the opposing passing game. And in this division where you've got Drew Brees and you've got Matt Ryan, you've got Tom Brady, three guys who do their best damage from within the pocket. If you can get rush up the middle and force them to have to move out of the pocket or at least move out with or, or move within the pocket, you have an advantage. And I think that that's going to be where Derek Brown makes his biggest impact. Can he do that in year one? We will see. Uh, there's, I saw one eight second clip of Derek Brown the other day where he was bull rushing Matt Paradis, which leave the name dr- out of it. Draw your own conclusions on whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. But that that's the kind of thing you're looking for out of Derek Brown. I totally agree. I just wouldn't say we're sleeping on a guy who, who was a top 10 pick. And I think a lot of people are looking at as, as one of the linchpins of the defense moving forward. So who are you, we're, who are you filling in the blank with then? Steven Weatherly? Okay. Uh, Steve, well, as a player, right? My real answer is, is Matt rule, but I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Steven Weatherly is a guy that in Minnesota backed up Everson Griffin, uh, backed up Daniel Hunter, 
was never going to be a focal point of the Minnesota Vikings defense throughout his career. He was a rotational defensive end backing up two tremendous players off the edge. Steven Weatherly has never had more than five sacks in a season. I think it actually might be three and a half. Uh, but Weatherly, when you look at his body, you're like, that guy looks like a great edge rusher. He's got incredibly long arms. He's got a great ability to rush the passer when he's given the snaps. And I think now that he's playing in, in Carolina where he is going to be the guy, they don't have a ton of depth at those positions. Christian Miller has opted out. Marquise Haynes is pretty much a linebacker at this point, and I don't even know if Haynes is a guarantee to make the roster. FAO Bada is still, we don't really, I don't think you can put a, a, any, you can expect much out of FAO Bada if you get something great, but I don't have a high expectation for him. Weatherly and Brian Burns are the guys on the defensive line, and why I'm saying don't sleep on them is because when you think edge rushers in Carolina, you think Burns. Burns is the guy that everybody's looking at and saying, hey, this guy had seven and a half sacks a year ago. We saw five and a half of those sacks come early in the season. We thought he looked like a defensive rookie of the year until the injury derailed his rookie season. And now everyone's looking at Burns. Can he be that? Can he take that jump in his sophomore season? Nobody's talking about this guy they signed for a pretty cheap deal out of Minnesota. I think Stephen Weatherly is going to surprise some people and have a, I don't know, I'm not going to say some outrageous season, but I think Weatherly is going to be better than anyone expects because right now nobody's talking about Stephen Weatherly. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting you mentioned Weatherly. I actually think Weatherly and Obata are two guys who should be on this list. I, I know you kind of uh, said that, that you don't think he should be on this list. This is a guy who last year... Uh, Obata, I mean, listen, he's not young, but he is young in a football sense. He doesn't have a lot of hits in his body. He's only 28. But this is a guy who, in a system that he actually fit in the 4-3, teased some real potential. He had veterans in front of him. There were reasons he didn't play. He's also still incredibly raw. Last year, I don't know that anybody was more hurt by the switch to the 3-4 he just didn't fit. He wasn't He wasn't going to be a 3-4 uh, edge rusher. He wasn't really big enough to be uh, a five technique or, or slide inside. I think with a defense that prioritizes athleticism and, a pri and, and something that can maybe bring out some versatility in him, I, I think, again, I don't think he's going to be a starting defensive end, but I think if he and Weatherly are just good rotational pieces – I'm sorry, you add that to Brian Burns, and suddenly I think you have a defensive line to really start talking about. Yeah, it's going to be decent. I I, just, I don't know how good the defensive line's truly going to be, like, overall. But but Burns, Burns and Brown are the keys as far as, I mean, they're, they're the most talented players on the defensive line. Obata, to me... I think he's a great guy. I think he's been a really good addition to that locker room the last couple of years. People, players seem to really, really like being around him. He's a great teammate, and he's a really hard worker. Uh, I loved one of my favorite underrated scenes in, in an Amazon show a couple of years ago was was watching F.A. and watching the work that he is putting in just to stay on the roster to try to get his moment. If you take away that game against Cincinnati a couple of years ago, Obata really hasn't had many moments in the NFL where he looks like a guy that you could you could start and play 80% of snaps in a game. Weatherly has had those moments, so I, I I like Weatherly a little bit more, and Weatherly's going to get the first crack at being that edge rusher, but there are some no-names on this defense, and if a couple of them start to step up, that's when we can start to tar start talking about that that overachieving defense, maybe helping the Panthers get to six, seven, eight wins. Looking across the Panthers roster here, uh, who are you saying don't sleep on as we get closer and closer to the regular season? The fear is real. But so is the reality of one simple fact. Sports Radio FNC. Play the game the right way. Make the extra pass.
guys to shoot the shots that's there. Try to create two on the basketball. You got numbers on the back end on four and three. And defensively, you have to you know, key in on the game plan. Game plan. Can't make mistakes in the postseason. I believe we made some mistakes uh, defensively. We played hard. There's some mistakes that we made, especially going down the stretch. And offensively, we got some really good looks. So you got to knock them out. We go five for 35 from the three-point line. You know, it's 11 free points. I'm going to end a close game until you know, those last couple minutes. So um, those are things that we can do. You know, the shooting from the outside things you can't control. You want to shoot better from the free throw line, but the mistakes are things you can control. Sports Radio FNZ, that was LeBron last night after the Lakers' 193 loss in Game 1 to the Portland Trailblazers. I do think the fear is real, Josh. But the simple fact that it is one game, it's the NBA playoffs, and it's going to be tough to shoot uh, single. Uh, sorry, in the teens again tomorrow for three-point uh, for three point percentage for the, the Lakers. I, I, it's definitely the fear is real, but I think people trying to push the panic, Charles getting the brooms out yesterday on, uh, on Turner. It's a little early for that. Are you talking about Charles Barkley yeah. getting the broom out? Yeah, that was hilarious. Uh, good game from Carl Kuzma and CP3 uh, for the Lakers last night. Shout out you to Chuck C3PO? for that. You mean C3PO? No, he called him CP3. He called uh, he called KCP CP3 mm-hmm. on the pregame show. He said Carl Kuzma and CP3 were going to be big keys for the Lakers. I don't know where, who Carl Kuzma is, and okay. CP3 was playing in the game before. Spin zone, Carl Kuzma nor CP3 showed up. For the Lakers last night, this could explain the loss. Yeah, maybe that was why they lost. Uh, last week on the show, I said the Blazers were going to beat the Lakers in the first round. If they got to the first round. Because remember, I mean, Portland had to win a bunch of games just to get there. Last night, I thought was a great chance for the Lakers to win game one. They were well rested. They had locked up the one seed early. They really didn't put much effort into the last week and a half in the bubble, which what depending on how you looked at it, could have been a good thing or a bad thing, but this was a team that had more or less taken the last week off from playing intense basketball, while Portland had played four straight do-or-die games just to get into the playoffs. I thought last night was a chance for the Lakers to take on maybe a little bit of a worn-down Portland team, catch them in game one, get the win, and then we'll see where the series goes from there. But that's not what happened. You know, you mentioned the shooting last night. You know, the Blazers, in the last five games before last night, had given up at least 120 points every single night. That is one of the worst defenses in the NBA. And the Lakers couldn't even hit 100. They couldn't hit water if they fell out of a boat from outside. It was an absolute no-show from everybody not named LeBron James. And and Anthony Davis was great in spurts, but Anthony Davis wasn't even all that great last night. He was very passive, and that was a problem for L.A. LeBron cannot do it alone. LeBron can do it alone, but he doesn't want to do it alone starting in the first round of the conference uh, the conference playoffs. If LeBron's going to start doing it all on himself, he can't do it for four straight rounds. Not in this conference. The, the three-point shooting of the Lakers last night, you mentioned it. It was in the teens. The second worst three-point shooting night in league history in the playoffs for a team that took that many threes. It was an historically bad shooting night, which is a good thing if you're the Lakers because it, 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 the chances are it doesn't happen again. But last night was an absolute no-show for the supporting cast of the Lakers, and it's the biggest reason why I'm worried about L.A. Getting through the Western Conference, A, but I'm worried about them getting through Portland. And I, and last night and last night did not I clearly did nothing to change my mind. Yeah, I think the the thing that I would say is uh, one I actually 
I kind of had a feeling that Portland was going to win the game going into it for for one reason, opposite of what you thought. I thought Portland was coming in playing off. Uh, playing its ass off and playing in desperation mode. They've had to be their best every single night. The Lakers have been able to lollygag through the end of the playoff or through the end of the regular season in the bubble. And I think they kind of needed last night. Uh, quite frankly, they they need somebody to have a night that, that isn't LeBron James, be it uh, probably not AD either, but they need a Danny Green or a KCP or C3PO, as Chuck called him, or uh, a Kuzma. They need somebody to have a big night from three one of these nights because what I saw last night was a lot of guys who the second you could just tell in their body language, they had no confidence it was going in. A guy like Danny Green who's been here and done it, I saw him take a couple threes last night where – he didn't. He got the ball, and I knew he wasn't going to make it because he just doesn't look like he's in the mode necessary. I, I think, I, I definitely think the fear is real, and I think the fear of their own three shooting is more than their bad perimeter defense. But I also think if you can just have one of those nights where one of these dudes catches fire, I think that's going to take a big weight off this team because they just don't look like they have a lot of confidence outside LeBron right now. They're going to need more than one guy for one night. They're going to need multiple guys every single night. Well, but I think the idea is that if you have one guy having a big night, it's going to take the the pressure off that they feel right now. I, I, I I think that's the first step to them getting more than just one guy. Yeah, here's the problems with the Lakers. So Danny Green, as you mentioned, doesn't look like he had confidence last night. He hasn't had confidence in months. I mean, going back to before the the, the layoff. This is a guy that shoots over 40% for his career from three. He's down to 36% this season. Last night, he was 25%, which is one game. But he, this is a guy who has struggled from three all year long. His percentage has dropped dramatically from where it was a year ago. Danny Green was a was an, a, an integral part of the Raptors championship last season because of his ability to defend, but also knock down threes. He's not knocking down shots. And if he's not knocking down shots, it makes the Lakers offense very, very easy to defend. I mean, this is a team that I said it last week. It's like putting a Mack truck in a drag race. You've got a team that's got, that's full of size. You've got LeBron and AD. You throw other bodies at Dwight Howard, who again, last night was just a walking foul. JaVale McGee, who you never know what's going to happen on one end or the other. He'll give you a, a great block shot. One play he'll, he'll travel and commit a moving screen the next, but this is a team that's built on size and trying to get to the rim. And if you don't have the shooters around them to create space, the Lakers become easy to defend especially for a team like Portland that's one of the worst defensive teams in the NBA. And last night, the Lakers made it incredibly easy for them to, to, to be defended. LeBron James had an historic stat line. One of the, I think it was the first time in NBA history you had a guy with 20, uh, over 15 rebounds and over 15 assists in a playoff game. He was magnificent. LeBron was great last night, and it didn't matter because they didn't get help from anybody else. Th- their worst lineup, of all of the lineups that they use, the worst lineup, the worst combination is LeBron James, Danny Green, KCP, Anthony Davis, and JaVale McGee. That's their worst lineup in net rating. And it's their starting lineup. Their starting five is the worst five-man combo on the roster. And that's the one that Frank Vogel is is trotting out there. So part of this is on Vogel for the way that he coached, 
to start the game and down the stretch, it was an abysmal night for the Lakers everywhere you slice it. And that's been par for the course for the Lakers for the last week and a half. Meanwhile, to your point, you talk about confidence with the Lakers. The more confident basketball team right now ain't the one seed. It's the eight seed. The Blazers are confident and they do not fear L.A., especially Damian Lillard. Yeah, and this is I, I understand and I agree with you about the other guys. I agree with the Greens and the Kuzmas. And if we want to go deeper into that, uh, you know, Waiters and Caruso and those guys, I agree that they need to do something. Thing. And they need they need to have some positive contributions. But this is a superstar league. Uh, I'm not trying to knock the dude, but for one game, that was one of the softest double doubles I've seen, or that's the softest 28 points I've seen a big score in Anthony Davis. If LeBron's going to be the guy that sets everybody up, which is how it's going to have to be until Rajon Rondo comes back, if LeBron's going to be that guy. And if he's not just going to go into to you know zero dark uh, twenty three mode, then Anthony Davis has to take on the other role, which is the guy who, when they need buckets, will get it. And uh, oh, from five from outside last night, eight of twenty four, thirty three percent from the field is not going to cut it. This is put up or shut up time for Anthony Davis to me. I agree. Um, I, this is where I go back to Vogel a little bit as well. Anthony Davis has to play the five. And this has been a story all year long for the Lakers, going back to the very day that Anthony Davis signed in L.A. and he said, I don't like playing the five. When Anthony Davis plays the five, the Lakers are six points per hundred possessions better than whoever they face. When Davis is on the floor as the center, it completely changes the complexion of the Lakers because they can't play small. Because LeBron can be point guard, but he can guard bigs on the other end. He can be that power forward defensively. And you can put three guards around them. You can put Deion Waiters on the floor. You can put Kuzma on the floor. You can put Green or, or, or Caldwell Pope or whatever. And you can just be a little bit smaller. And you can defend better as well against teams that tip typically are trying to space the floor when you have McGee and Davis on the floor, or even when you have Howard and Davis on the floor, which they don't do a ton of, but when you have Howard and Davis on the floor together, you, it makes it very hard for you defensively because you are so much slower. You are so much bigger. I'm worried about the construction of this Lakers team. I look at the best teams in the NBA. I mean, you said it's a star driven league and I agree with you to, to an extent, but look at the teams that win championships. You, you have your great star players, but Last year in Toronto, it was Pascal Siakam, and it was Danny Green, and it was Fred Van Vliet, and those players who surrounded the Stars and helped the Raptors win a championship. A couple of years ago when it was Golden State, it was Sean Livingston, Andre Iguodala. It was players like that who, who played above, punched above their weight and came up with big play after big play on both ends of the floor. Where are those guys for the Lakers? I thought Deion, Deion Waiters was actually one of the bright spots for the Lakers during the restart in the bubble. He played one minute last night. Where's Deion Waiters? Because Deion Waiters is probably the best offensive player, outside of Kuzma, the best offensive player they have, not named LeBron and Anthony Davis right now. This team's in a world of trouble. We'll see if Rajon Rondo's return in a couple of days might help them. I think they'll get him back for game three. But the Lakers have problems, even if they somehow sneak past Portland. I got a real concerns about them when they play Houston, uh, if they play Houston, which I think they will. And then right now, the Clippers, uh, I just think the Clippers might could take out L.A. in five games if they wanted to. This, this Lakers team is, is not impressive. When I hear you say that, you know, trying to figure out the other guys, what I hear is that Frank Vogel allowed KCP and Alex Caruso to play 29 minutes a night last night, despite going 1 of 15 from the field in 0 of 8 from beyond the arc. That, to me, is a problem. I, I think that you mentioned that Warriors team, 
you know, those guys didn't all fire. Those bench pieces didn't all fire at all times. And the thing that Curtis was so friggin' good about was getting the right guy in at the right moment. And the reason why he did that is he just tried it. He just tried different things. Not necessarily a guy like Livingston, but early on, a guy like Boris Dia, who was hot and cold every other night in the playoffs, he found out when to play him and how to play him. You've got... Uh, you've got guys like J.R. Smith not playing last week or last night. You've got Dion Waiters playing uh, one minute last night. I, if you're truly going to try and make up the difference for Avery Bradley and for uh, certainly Rajon Rondo, you got to split, split those minutes more easy, evenly, and you've got to find you've got to go to the hot hand when the hand is hot and when it's cold. Call it cold. I know it's not always that easy. It's easier to say than it's to do. But Frank Vogel's got to do some coaching for this team to figure out the back end of their roster. David Ubbin of The Athletic tells us uh, what's if what's good for UNC will be good for the rest of the Power 5 conferences, Sports Radio FNC.